You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Sitting in the University of British Columbia Archives and Special Collections in the fall of 2011, yes, a few years ago, I held with reverence a sheaf of yellow foolscap, lines upon lines of ink-based scrawl flowing across the page. It was, I would learn, a handwritten memoir, the only one, authored by a Canadian writer who would become the subject of my current research project, Jane Rule. And there I was in the archive, holding this unpublished document in my trembling hands. It's no wonder I fell in love with working in the archives, this rich and exciting and dusty place. (laughs) Several different accounts of this moment, or moments like these, are characterized as discoveries or discovery narratives. Like the moment, as another example, when I realized while sitting in the British Columbia Archives and Records Service in Victoria that there was a page in painter and artist Emily Carr's scrapbook that, if I pried it back ever so gently at the corner, revealed some of her handwriting. And as the archivist and I would later learn, there had been a story by Carr that she wrote on the back of that page. Curiosity, by the way, is a good thing in the archives. So we might characterize these as discoveries. I myself am guilty of having so characterized such a moment. But when we really reflect upon the nature of this experience and consider the real meaning of discovery, we may want to reconsider how we characterize such moments. The etymology of, that is, the root meaning of discover, may be traced back to circa 1300, meaning to divulge, reveal, disclose, expose. It's derived from the old French word découvrir, meaning the opposite of covering up or burying. But there's an extra meaning here I don't want us to miss. It means to unveil, reveal, and betray. So in its original signification, it had a pejorative connotation that involved malicious exposure, opening up someone to harm, that is sometimes uncovering meant revealing in a way that implied injury to someone else. And this was especially true when there was an asymmetrical relationship between the person doing the revealing and the subject being revealed. The word has evolved in its signification, to be sure, but never did I learn better of the dual nature of this word than when I did my research on poet and activist Emner Bezi Philip, with whom I carefully worked to select materials from her archive, of her choosing, by the way, and not mine, and then rendered her story, which she read over a couple of times to be sure it represented her perspective accurately. The revealing, the uncovering, had to be on her terms in order not to betray. And if we think of this even more broadly, we may consider how perhaps someone like 
Christopher Columbus and the discovery of America and its indigenous populations a colossal act of arrogance rather than a revealing of a continent that was always there and to people who really didn't need discovering. It's this kind of thing that explains how I approach my own labor in the archives. I've explained the process to others and suggested that it often feels like divining, a word that also harkens back to a much earlier period and which means to learn or make out by divination or to foretell. And its root, divine, from the Old French, divin, meaning of or belonging to a god or inspired, filled with the spirit, involved foreseeing or foretelling. More specifically, I like to think of water divining. And this is the method by which some people claim to be able to locate water using forked sticks or bent rods which apparently quiver in response to the existence of an aquifer located below the surface and which help others to locate the said aquifer. Well, when I work in archives, it almost feels like this for me, as if I were holding two pencils toward the catalog description of the holdings I need to look through. Although, of course, I'm not saying it is that. Still, when I read over a catalog of the description of the contents of an archival deposit or when I'm rifling through the materials of a box, I almost feel my body quiver as I near something that I think is important. And I think of this experience as a lot less like discovery than actually the affect related to proximity. I'm not searching to reveal or uncover, but rather draw closer to and connect with the materials at hand. So this is what I think archival research, and research in general, does. We draw closer and move toward another subject as if there were a gravitational pull, as if we were divining the materials. In other words, I'm interested in the process of drawing closer to these materials, and I am mindful of what it is that I'm trying to connect to and resonate with. In a way, I wasn't then entirely surprised when, sitting at the University of British Columbia archives this past April 2022, many years later, I was approached by a young woman to join a group of what appeared to be students in an adjoining room to check out their exhibit. I set my pencil down, closed the archival box of materials with which I'd been working, and then entered that space. There I came to interact with several presentations by young students taking a creative writing class titled Experimental and Hybrid Forms, which focused on combining poems with other media, and which was being taught by Sherada Warner, a poet herself, and the very person who had invited me to have a quick look at the exhibit. I stood at the entrance of the room and then picked two works by student poets in the class to peruse and enjoy. And these, my dear listeners, are the poets who are featured today, along with Sherada Warner, but more of that in a moment. First, allow me to speak about Warner, whose book of poetry I subsequently picked up and read through for today's episode. She recently published Test Piece with Coach House Books, a collection of poetry that reflects upon forms of seeing and experience, while also paying tribute to artists like Anne Truitt. She's an American sculptor renowned for her large-scale minimalist sculptures. Or Ruthasawa, an American modernist sculptor, and Agnes Barton, an American abstract painter. 
and also and especially Eva Hesse, the German-born sculptor who was a forerunner in the experimentation of integrating materials like latex, fiberglass, and plastics. She's also, I should say, lauded for having ushered in the post-minimal art movement in the 1960s. Well, Warner is clearly influenced by these artists and pays homage to them. In Test Pieces, that's the poem after which the entire collection is named, and which is, in fact, dedicated to Hesse, she assimilates different poetic styles and voices to produce a rich polyphony, even as the perspectives are stripped down to bare essentials. The poet, the sculptor, the dinner guest, the writing workshop organizer. The poems are as preoccupied with artistic process, the test pieces of which the collection is comprised, as much as the subjects of the poems. So, the opening lyric begins with the poet's observations about and experiences in relation to an aesthetic object in an art exhibit. Quote, High up the gallery wall, a gold silk iridesces, gets me in the chest like, gah, blindside. But it also attends to the poet's musing about creative pieces and processes in more general terms. In another example, the poet is taking an ekphrasis workshop. This is so very relevant to the collection as a whole. Ekphrasis is a literary device that calls upon an involved description or characterization of a work of visual art outside the poem, the very device that Warner is using throughout the collection. That is, she is often describing the aesthetic work of sculptors, the, quote, no silk or silken or ephemeral but rigid sculptures inner buoyancy at various stages of decomposition, end quote. In a couple of specific poetic lines about the workshop, the poet offers this reflection, quote, let the process show through and fray, end quote. And in turn, the workshop organizer responds, quote, where the making of an image becomes an object in itself, activate that, end quote. So Warner's poems are as much about the process, the fraying, if you will, the making of images through her lines, however imperfect or unpolished or unfinished, the chaos and upheaval as our bodies move through and perceive elements of the world, and at times connect with that world too. Well, as I say, Warner was the instructor who invited me to check out the exhibit of these students, but there were two I chose to be represented in today's episode. The first of these was Mackenzie Sewell, a recent graduate of the Creative Writing Program at the University of British Columbia, who specializes in poetry and young adult fiction. She explains her multimedia project, titled Iris, in the following audio clip, and then reads a passage from her work. I had the chance to sit down in this exhibit, listen to the music she chose through earphones, while studying watercolor paintings of the body and reading her poems. This is Mackenzie Sewell. 
The final hybrid form, entitled Iris, was a playlist of songs accompanied by abstract watercolor paintings that, when a silhouette of the body was placed on top, showed the bodily effect of the respective song. Each song and painting were paired with a prose poem representing a memory that the song brings me. The following is a reading from the page corresponding to the song, Soon You'll Get Better, by Taylor Swift. You went to the doctor for your fatigue and were diagnosed with depression. You have two bottles of drugs and no idea what to do, but you put an alarm on your phone so you take them on time. You download five different mental health apps and abandon each of them after a week. You won't delete them. Your partner doesn't want to see you cry anymore. You don't know how to stop. You'll offer to leave because you think you're making her miserable. You tell her you don't want to live this life anymore, this life of apathy and snoozing your alarms, but she tells you that you don't have a choice but to live it. You say you forget what happy feels like. She says you'll learn. You'll remember. She'll help you to remember. You force yourself to smile when you see Christmas lights, when you see her freckles. You buy plants, then you shoplift them, put them on your bookshelf and stare at them. Some of them die, not you. You read books and you write, you learn. 2020. And in the same exhibit, I came across this highly elegant, streamlined collection of poetry by Graham Kennedy. The condensed spare lines of the poem stand in almost contradiction of the expanse of love and depth of grief as they also serve as a tribute to the very person for whom they were written. This is Graham Kennedy. This project is called Letters to S, and it is a series of postcards addressed to my friend Sasha, who passed away in 2018. I wrote it as a way to engage with absence and presence. Here's an excerpt. Dear S, a thin layer of water separates us. Dark petals from Liam's grandmother's bouquet float on the surface. The nights shorten. Blue flowers cover the yard. Bloom into negative space. Dear S, shells sounding the ocean. Is this absence? Is the unwritten absence? Is post in transit absence? Is transition absence? Is progression absence? Is transformation absence? Is absence music? The frogs stop. A bright coin levels with the soft ground. Absence is a threshold. Dear S, there's a bell buried outside my window, a tin of shoe grease and dried flowers on my desk. I hold my ear to the door and listen. The act of divining that day allowed me to connect with the poetry of Kennedy and that of Sewell and Warner and to appreciate that the process that being and researching and connecting in the archives is as important as what I produce thereafter. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. 
If you're listening to this on the first day of the episode's release, that is November 24th, 2022, and if you happen to be in Montreal, you still have time to make it to the event I'm going to talk about in today's takeaway, the Salon de Livre de Montréal. The Salon de Livre, which finds its origins in the 1950s in Montreal, although there's another such venue also in Quebec City, the Salon de Livre is a flagship event in French-language publishing in North America. Since November of 1978, the event has taken place in the Exhibition Hall of Place Bonaventure. Thousands upon thousands of visitors descend upon the Salon, where there are sometimes up to 2,000 authors presenting their work through interviews, workshops, roundtables, and the kiosks of publishing houses. This year's Salon du Livre remains in the hall of Place Bonaventure, although there are also satellite events, like the conversation set to take place this evening between Sean Michaels and David Mitchell at the Atwater Library. It runs until the 27th of November, and if you'd like more information about it, I'm adding a link in my show notes. That's it for today's episode. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think about the books we've been reviewing or about books you'd like to see us review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.